You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about otorrhea, or ear drainage. This is caused by ear canal pathology or middle ear disease when there's been tympatic membrane perforation. We often associate ear canal pathology with otitis externa, or swimmer's ear, but the differential diagnosis also includes foreign body, traumatic TM perforation, CSF leak from trauma, and neoplasm. We're going to talk through this differential and the management of otorrhea today with Dr. Ryan Ruiz, who's an attending physician with the Division of Otolaryngology at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Ruiz. Thank you very much for the invitation. Happy to be here. Great. So let's get started with what we see commonly in primary care, which is otitis externa or swimmer's ear. This is a bacterial infection of the external canal, typically Pseudomonas aeruginosa or Staph aureus, and often there's a history of water exposure or swimming. Patients may report ear pain, itching, and or hearing loss. So Dr. Ruiz, what are some of the key physical exam findings that help us feel confident that this is otitis externa rather than some of the other things I mentioned in the differential diagnosis that are a little bit scarier? Great question. First, I'd just like to emphasize, as you just alluded to, that both history and physical exam are critical for the diagnosis of otitis externa. It can be difficult, even for the astute clinician, to differentiate between an otitis externa and a potentially ruptured otitis media, which we'll talk about later. You already nailed the key components of the history. External ear infections occur normally in older children relative to the otitis media population. And water exposure is another key critical finding that is usually temporally related to the onset of pain. From a physical exam perspective, there are probably two key features. The first is exquisite pain and tenderness to palpation on manipulation of the pinna or the tragus, kind of the external portion of the ear. And since the external canal is connected to the pinna via cartilage, manipulation will irritate the infected skin and cause significant pain. Drainage coming from a middle ear source will likely not elicit this symptom, and so is much more specific for otitis externa. The second is circumferential narrowing of the external canal. Like all tissue that becomes infected, the ear canal skin will become indurated or swollen, which will therefore narrow the lumen of the ear canal. This is most helpful in unilateral cases, which is pretty common, where examining the contralateral ear first will give you a good reference point for the normal caliber of the ear canal. Those are great points. And I always try to start with what I call the good ear or the ear that's not hurting so I can get a baseline of what their normal is. But sometimes the canal is so swollen that it's hard for me to see the TM. And if there isn't a good water exposure, it can be tricky to tease out if that's a perforated TM or if that's an otitis externa. But you're saying the swelling of the canal should really clue us in that this is an externa. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as we'll get to in a minute with treatment, Sometimes you can't tell the difference, Mm -hmm. and that's okay. Mm -hmm. There are safe ways to treat both problems, 
both of which are very effective. So while you may think, you know, I need to figure out what's going on in a particular circumstance, sometimes just initiating the appropriate treatment is enough and then seeing them back or referring them to us for an interval exam when the swelling has improved. Well, I always love confirmation that an ENT has trouble with ear exams too sometimes, so thanks for that. (laughs) You mentioned treatment, so let's get into that. Treatment of otitis externa includes both the pain control piece and antibiotic eardrops, but there are a lot of different drop options out there. I've sort of gotten most comfortable with one or two that I use routinely, and then sometimes I have partners who use others that I've never used before. So of all the eardrop options, is there one that I should be using first line? Another great question. For the most part, at least in the United States, the algorithm amongst ENTs is very straightforward. And while there is literature internationally where there are certain kind of different habits based on certain available antibiotics, there is a very small group of drops that are safe for patients who have perforated eardrums. And so, as I mentioned just earlier, since it can be very difficult to assess whether the ear drum is intact or not because of the swelling in the ear canal, it's safest just to use those very select groups of drops that we know are safe if some of that drop happens to end up in the middle ear space through a perforated eardrum. Mm -hmm. So in the United States, there are essentially only the quinolone drops that we know are safe for administration in the middle ear. And those are ofloxacin, or commonly called floxin, and then a ciprofloxacin-dexamethasone combination called Ciprodex. So other drops can definitely be effective, especially if you are certain or reasonably confident about the integrity of the tympanic membrane. Corticosporin drops are another very commonly used one, I think, in urgent care settings, maybe when the ear canal isn't so swollen that you can't see the eardrum at all. The issue, of course, is that other common antibiotics are at least in theory what we call ototoxic or vestibulotoxic. So that means if a perforation is present, Those medications can be absorbed by the middle ear mucosa and go into the cochlea and potentially cause a hearing loss or a vestibular issue, which could be permanent. So that's why we stick with those two main ones if we can. That's a great point. And I use ofloxacin all the time, so I'm glad that I'm on track there. And it was good to have that reminder about other things maybe not being safe if there's a perforation. Now, talking about perforation and drainage, When would you consider culturing ear drainage? Do we just ignore it? Is there any point in culturing it? When would we want to? There are definitely several scenarios where it would be important to at least consider an ear culture. The first would be in an immunosuppressed patient where you might be concerned about an atypical organism or a typical organism that's maybe now resistant to standard treatment. Another common scenario might be when a patient has already been treated with multiple antimicrobial drops and the organism of interest is unclear. This is something as, you know, specialists and and a referral center that we see pretty often in clinic. And the issue is that the appearance and character of otorrhea can sometimes be very nondescript. There are certain circumstances where it's very clear what the otorrhea is causing. So, for instance, if you saw fungal hyphae or a spore in the ear canal, that'd be a very clear sign that it was a fungal organism. Mm -hmm. But other times, as I mentioned, the drainage is sometimes in the kind of white to pale yellow color and therefore doesn't really indicate something specific at all. And so a culture is a great way to narrow down what the biggest culprit is contributing to drainage and then for you can use targeted therapy after that. Mm -hmm. Great. 
Now, the other thing that we see in the ear canal all the time is obviously cerumen. And parents are always concerned about their child's ear being waxy. I hear them apologizing for it. I hear them asking questions about it a lot. I'm sure you get this as well. What role does cerumen play in contributing to an otitis externa? And in the second part of that question is sort of, do I need to worry about their ears being waxy all the time if they are a swimmer? Yes. So parents are so, so concerned unnecessarily about their children's (laughs) earwax for the most part. By far, the most common role cerumen plays in otitis externa in my practice is when bad things happen after humans try and remove that cerumen that is supposed (laughs) to naturally exist in their ear canal. Mm -hmm. So cerumen is produced by specialized glands within the lateral one-third of your external ear canal and should naturally migrate out of your ear given time. The trouble starts either when that wax is artificially pushed inside with the Q-tip, obstructing the ear canal, or when the wax is scraped out of the ear canal with any number of items. People can be quite creative in what they stick in their ears, (laughs) but the unfortunate result is normally a small injury or trauma to the integrity of the ear canal skin. This allows bacteria to colonize inside of the skin, invade through that injury, proliferate and cause an otitis externa. So while this wasn't specific to your question, I don't think, I think the most common issue is inadvertent injury, and that's what leads to many of the otitis externas that I see. Mm-hmm. Less common but theoretically possible is that a ball of semi-obstructing wax is making it easier for water to enter while in the pool or in a shower, but harder to exit. And so that water can then kind of aggregate or accumulate and sit there like a petri dish within the external canal skin. Since there isn't a good outlet for that to evaporate, that can also be a breeding ground for bacteria. So I would say almost always earwax is a good thing. There are maybe specific circumstances in children with small ear canals and semi-obstructed ear canals where the wax may be contributing to chronic symptoms. Great. So it's good to know we can reassure them that the wax is not usually the problem and they should leave it alone. Don't get creative. (laughs) Dr. Ruiz says, don't get creative in cleaning out your ears. Let him do it if necessary. Please. So let's shift gears a little bit now and talk about drainage from the middle ear coming through either a ruptured TM or a tympanostomy tube that you've put in. If we believe the history supports acute otitis media, maybe they have pain and fever, and we see purulent drainage in the canal, can we treat with eardrops alone or should we also use an oral antibiotic? So to my knowledge, there's actually no good evidence to support one method over the other. There is good evidence from randomized control trials when looking at the administration of oral antibiotics versus observation in cases where maybe you're not sure if it's a bacterial or a viral infection. But the sign of otorrhea, there being kind of purulent fluid there, that's more of a clear-cut indication that bacteria is the culprit, and therefore oral antibiotics are normally more effective than observation. So that's pretty straightforward. Mm -hmm. But whether or not the addition of a topical agent is going to help or decrease the time to treatment, That is less well-known in the specific setting of a ruptured eardrum. If, however, there is an ear tube in place, there is good evidence to support that a nototopical agent like Floxin or Cipridex actually does resolve tubotoria quicker than an equivalent antibiotic such as Augmentin. So it somewhat depends on the circumstance. I don't think you're really going to go wrong either way. 
If there are tubes in place, very straightforward, start with topical antibiotic drops. If it's a ruptured eardrum, the main reason to lean towards oral antibiotics is if there's a question of a bilateral infection. That other eardrum, of course, is intact, and the questionably purulent fluid within that other middle ear space isn't going to be accessed at all by the topical drops. Of course, if you're worried about a bilateral infection, I would err towards an oral antibiotic and a unilateral infection or with a tube, uh, you could certainly start with a topical drop. Fascinating that there's not a lot of great evidence there, but also this is a nice perk, I guess, of having a tympanostomy tube is that you can use something localized like an eardrop to treat your next infection. So when the TM has spontaneously ruptured, something I see a lot of practice variation in is bringing these patients back to ensure that the TM has properly healed. So is this something that we should be doing? And if so, what's a realistic time frame for a TM to heal and bring them back to look at it again? Yeah, so I think the short answer is yes. I think it is best practice to ensure that the hole has closed, especially in the summer months when swimming is much more common. It's best to ensure that the ear is safe, essentially, for additional water exposure. Mm -hmm. If the perforation progresses to more permanent or semi-permanent perforation, water can enter through the ear canal, get into the middle ear space, and cause essentially a bacterial infection from the outside in. So that's certainly not a situation you would like to go unaddressed for prolonged periods. The best data we have on spontaneous perforation closure doesn't come from spontaneous ruptures after infection, but from traumatic perforations, which I think we'll discuss a little bit later. And while different, I think a similar rule of thumb more or less can be applied. So in that literature, the average healing time depends on perforation size, but is in the time frame essentially of like three to four weeks. So average time to resolution was somewhere like in the 24 to 26 day range. So when I see a child who either had a spontaneous rupture or had a traumatic perforation, I like to see them essentially roughly a month later, three to four weeks later. Anecdotally, however, I've seen several young children after spontaneous perforations that by the time they come to me, it's already healed, which is generally two or three weeks later. So it can be pretty quick. Mm -hmm. So when kids have an open TM, whether it's a perforation from infection or trauma, or if they have ear tubes, what are the swimming precautions that they should take to prevent the infections you just mentioned? Yeah, so after a TM rupture, children should definitely protect the ear from outside water exposure. This provides the tympanic membrane with the safest microbial environment possible for healing. The goal is to try and prevent a middle ear infection caused by the transit of bacteria from the ear canal through the perforation and then into the middle ear, as I discussed earlier. This kind of infection can lead to a more permanent perforation if the inflammation essentially doesn't allow the hole to close because there's drainage coming from the hole. For tubes, however, we do not recommend any specific water precautions any longer, and that is reflected in both our National Academy guidelines, where there is a strong recommendation against limiting water exposure in children with tubes. That's based on some randomized trials where they trialed earplugs versus not or a random accumulation of behavioral measures and found a very, very small difference in the incidence of otorrhea after tubes but not a large enough effect size to warrant the exclusion of water participation in all children who have tubes. Mm, fascinating. That sounds like maybe it's a newer change because I've had some 
patients in the past who were using ophelaxacin drops after they swam in fresh water or things like that. Is that that's not something they should worry about doing, it sounds like. So that's a slightly different, <laughs> again, culturally in different countries and kind of across the United States. Things have changed dramatically even in the past decade or so. I think the change in recommendation within our national conference guideline was, I think, just about a decade ago. So clearly there was a lot of variation over time as the evidence was kind of coming in. For lake and ocean exposure, there are some who recommend prophylactic treatment, but I don't think there's any evidence to support that being more or less effective. I think that the broader picture from a community perspective is that it probably doesn't matter very much. And therefore, our recommendation at CHOP for the most part is to allow children to kind of interact and participate normally with water sports and swimming. And then if there's a problem, we can address it as it comes, as opposed to expecting the problem and preventing them from participating in activities that they would otherwise want to. I love it. We should let our kids swim and enjoy summer. Now, luckily, the otitis externa that we've been talking about so far has been pretty mild. But I have seen some cases where the swelling and pain are pretty significant. And running through my head in my differential is acute mastoiditis, which is something that we worry about missing. And in severe cases of otitis externa or otitis media, there can be some symptom overlap. So what are some of the red flags that I should see and raise alarm for mastoiditis and then refer to the ED? So you are absolutely correct. There is 100% both symptom and physical exam overlap. So let me just briefly specify a little further what acute mastoiditis means to us as otolaryngologists, mm -hmm. and then I'll go into the alarm bells. So we usually call the condition acute coalescent mastoiditis, and that's when a middle ear infection called acute otitis media progresses and starts to erode through the normal bony structures where the infection is normally contained. The purulent material is expanding and trying to find somewhere else to spread to. What usually happens is that the infection erodes through what we call the mastoid cortex, which is the outer lining of the bone behind the ear and covers the mastoid ear cells where the infection is. So getting back to your question specifically, the only somewhat specific sign for mastoiditis is proptosis of the ear, meaning that the ear is pushed forward and out. So not a symmetric swelling, but a swelling that is emanating from the posterior area, so behind the ear, and not swelling necessarily to the pinna or the canal itself. Of course, the key to this diagnosis is a temporal bone CT, which has to be done in the emergency room. So I think it's very reasonable if there is either a question in the history or a parent is calling you concerned and you're not able to examine that patient in person, it's always going to be safest to assume that a traditional ear infection has turned into a complicated ear infection and have that patient examined in an acute setting as quickly as possible. Great. And I love that tip that we would not expect canal swelling because as we talked about earlier in this conversation, canal swelling is one of the physical exam findings that you see commonly with otitis externa. And so if that is missing and there's pain back there, then I should be thinking a little bit more about mastoiditis. 100%. 
Let's switch a little bit now to talking about trauma, which we have alluded to throughout this conversation. Certainly, if we saw otorrhea after an acute head trauma, we would refer to the ED for concern for a CSF leak. However, more often in primary care, we see patients with pain after self-inflicted trauma, which you mentioned before, comes from things like putting a cotton swab too deep or using a foreign body or finger to scratch the external ear canal. So if we see otorrhea in this context, how should we manage it? The short answer is to refer them to an otolaryngologist. Mm -hmm. Frequently, blood or discharge can block your view of the medial ear canal and will prevent you from appropriately assessing the damage after trauma, either to the medial ear canal or to the eardrum itself. So if the trauma is minor enough that you still have a good view of both the ear canal and the eardrum and there is otorrhea, Trialing one of the two topical drops I mentioned earlier, either Floxin or Cipridex, prior to referral is a great first step. Mm -hmm. Additionally, direct injury to the eardrum can also damage the ossicles, the bones just beyond the eardrum that transmit sound to the cochlea. So evaluation of this kind of damage is best done by a combination of physical exam and audiologic testing, which we have available in our clinics. So it's always the safe bet to send them to us. Fortunately, the CSF space is protected very well from the ear canal, and cases of CSF otorrhea are rare outside a high-force injury like a motor vehicle accident. Otorrhea in that context is almost always accompanied by a temporal bone fracture, so those patients will require imaging probably not only of their temporal bones, but of their head and other regions if they had enough trauma to cause a skull-based fracture. So the characteristic and color of the drainage, I wouldn't be too, too worried about a CSF leak if it was just a manual injury because there's lots of bone protecting our brain <laughs> from the ear structures. And only in the case of, you know, a blunt force trauma or fracture would we worry about the CSF otorrhea. Great. That's a Good thing to know, and hopefully those patients would never be presenting to primary care. Hopefully not. <laughs> Most of what we discussed today included routine cases of otorrhea that we can manage in primary care, and we know how and when to refer to the emergency department. But what causes of otorrhea or clinical conundrums should we be referring to you in the ENT clinic? Yeah, so one thing that I've been alluding to back and forth in terms of physical exam, but I think would be really important to highlight as kind of a service we can provide as otolaryngologists that many primary care doctors don't have the resources for. And that's an exam of the ear canal with a microscope and suction. And that is sometimes the only way to get a reliable physical exam. And as we've kind of been talking about over and over again, history and physical are really going to give you everything here in terms of how to treat things appropriately. So for just a basic clinical conundrum would be a patient who has, you know, a story that isn't really fitting very specifically with otitis externa or otitis media, but has sufficient otorrhea that it's hard for you to see what's going on. And that we, you know, we see kids like that all the time. And I think that's a very appropriate and useful referral because it gives us the opportunity to clean out the ear canal and hopefully very easily figure out what the source of the issue is and then help both the patient and you treat that appropriately in the future. Uh, in terms of the true clinical conundrums, as I somewhat alluded to before, there are patient populations who have inherent difficulty clearing bacterial infections in the middle ear space and can therefore be predisposed to what we call chronic otitis media, 
which is a condition where there is a chronic perforation with intermittent or constant and recalcitrant otorrhea. So these populations would include patients we are certainly no strangers to here at CHOP, such as children with cystic fibrosis, primary ciliary dyskinesia, certain inherited immunodeficiencies, and mucopolysaccharidosis, to name a few. Of course, those patients aren't in the population in huge numbers, but certainly here at CHOP, we're happy to see anyone who has an underlying medical condition and has a relatively straight, would, would otherwise be a relatively straightforward problem like otorrhea. Great. Thank you for the review of some of the things that you can do in clinic. And I know you have lots of fancy tools that we don't have to help also remove things like foreign bodies or um, impacted cerumen. And certainly another time that I think about sending kids to ENT is also when I need audiology along with someone who's had recurrent ear pathology. So we appreciate all of the resources that you have to offer our patients at all of the CHOP satellite sites that you go to, as well as at the main hospital. So thanks for all that you do for our patients and for talking to us a little bit about something that we see all the time in primary care and teaching us more about how to manage it. You're very welcome. I think, again, I'd just like to reiterate that we're collectively here as a resource and that there are certain problems that are just somewhat impossible to solve without the appropriate tools or instrumentation. So as you mentioned, we have those tools here, both audiology and the specialized instruments that we have to acutely treat or manage relatively straightforward problems. They help us a lot. And if we didn't have those things, treatment would be much harder. And so I think that if you're struggling or need an extra, literally uh, need an extra set of hands, (laughs) we're here to provide that service. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat. 